Bonin Cast, Product Innovation and UX Design with Bonanza Design. What's up, everyone? It's Leancast, another episode, and I'm lucky, excited, having goosebumps. I'm in front of Jamie, Jamie Levy, a, a UX goat, so to speak. She's been around as long as the internet has been around, even way back than internet. She has over 30 years of experience uh, making things. She's a UX strategist. She consults companies big and small. She has written a book on UX strategy, over 40,000 copies sold. And in the academic academic world, this is a huge, big deal. Um, she, I consider her as a, a as someone to look up to in my craft, and um, having her in front of me and luck, uh, the, having her in front of me and talking to her for the next sixty minutes is going to be a highlight of one of my highlights of this year. Jamie, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. It's so great to be here, Vera. Thanks for having me. Jamie, without talk, without you know, before starting to talk about UX strategy and all that, I really would like to get a bit for our audience. Just how did you get started? Um, what was your path all the way till now? Um, like get started with. UX or get started with being an interactive tech person or? Yes, let's start with being, like, how did you start with being, like, an interactive tech person and how did you sort of, like, end up writing a UX strategy book? Okay. Well, they're definitely separate things. Um, I wrote the book halfway through my career, I think, or even later. So, depends how long I keep working. Um, so, I started actually, I think I would say it started when I started graduate school at New York University. Um, I went to this program that was in the film school. Um, this is in the very late 80s uh, that specialized in interface design, mostly for interactive television, which hadn't been invented yet. So we were doing lots of prototypes, but even interfaces for ATM machines. And um, and they let me in with a full scholarship and everything because they wanted to change the department interactive telecommunications program for a line that was mostly full of people who work um, for banks and you know large financial institutions and corporations in New York to to more artistic folks and I had come in there and pitched them like that I wanted to experiment with the technology that I had a film background I came from California and that I wanted to do a form of nonlinear story storytelling and so I was so lucky to get in there especially with the scholarship because it's a very expensive school and immediately started just taking every class trying to understand every learn everything from how a television worked to editing to typesetting to 
just like every aspect of technology. And remember, at this time, the the internet had been invented. The internet was invented like long, long, longer when longer, long before I started. But the, the HTML and the web browser hadn't yeah. been invented yet, so we didn't have a distribution medium. We just had interactive media that could be at best distributed on a floppy disk and soon after a CD-ROM. And the tools were really just, and I think, I think I was playing with Mac Paint, Photoshop hadn't been invented. <laughs> and why this was a really fortunate time for someone like me who was young and really excited about, you know, the intersection of art and technology and storytelling was that there wasn't a YouTube, there wasn't a TikTok, there wasn't Vine, there wasn't like, people hadn't, there, there wasn't a web browser. So people, whatever I did was innovative. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I always talk about when people are like, the difference between trying to be an innovative person now and trying to be an innovative person then. Well, now it's easier to be innovative in the sense that we have all the tools. But it's mm -hmm. hard to do anything unique because everybody has the tools and everything's mm -hmm. been done, mostly. Whereas back then, it was just the Wild West of interactive technology. And I was like mm -hmm. the young gun chick, skater chick. And so I started, I decided for my master thesis that I would make an interactive magazine on floppy disks. That you just put the disk into a computer and it just blew up the screen with really cool graphics and sound samples from bands like Sonic Youth and Suicide and all this stuff I loved that was based in New York City. And mm. um, because it was a, a magazine that meant it would have more than one edition, you know, eventually I got pretty good at mashing content onto a floppy, but also storytelling in a nonlinear format. And so that's really, you know, so I came out in 1990 and I was already like, you know, so far ahead of everybody else with this crazy idea that people were like, yeah, no one's ever going to be interested in this. And, you know, so it was a really a wonderful time to start. Nineteen nineteen. So, wow, that's that's a long time ago, before web. And my my father was a, a at that time. So I think around nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety six. I remember I I was very I was seventy eight years old, and my 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 father we had the computer at home and using this floppy disk. So the whole idea of magazine on a floppy disk and like distributing flop, you would go to a shop and buy a floppy disk of a magazine. So that's like, that's how things would distribute in a city or in a, in a region. Um, how did, how did you, um, so when the web uh, got introduced, like it's got scaled, how did you see the web? Like what did you do with it? The second I saw it, you know, before a lot of other people, because I was working at uh, IBM as an interface designer. So we had a lab that mm. had one of the first, you know, web browsers that worked. And I, I and I've heard a similar version of my story from other people, which was, you know, yeah, I had this cush at that time, $60,000 a year job, which was a lot of money for 
for me back then and whenever it was, 90, 93, 94. And I saw this thing and I was still, I was, I was like, I, I was getting burned out of the discs of, of, of the whole idea of, of on a floppy disk. And I was hating on CD-ROMs because they just, they had so many issues. And I just saw this, I saw some crappy homepage with this chick talking about her cat. And I just pretty much walked into my boss's office and I said, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I'm done. Like I was so excited. I mean, they didn't let me quit so quickly, but I immediately uh, started going on, you know, different, um, you know, the well and echo NYC and different places to find someone that could teach me HTML. And there was someone written an article about some guy in, in the East village and I hired him immediately and just started just, I was so stoked. I just wanted to show the web browser to everybody that would mm. listen. And so I was doing these salons, like these cyber slacker salons in the East village in my loft there. And, you know, and I would have DJ Spooky play and, um, and all these people who were like tech people that they were, they were more like video art people. You know, there weren't that many tech people because tech was like, you couldn't do anything. Like the Amiga had just been kind of out, but you couldn't get anything out of it really. And the, there still wasn't a color Mac. And, but, you know, I had the web browser in my loft and people were like coming over and like sitting there getting stoned looking at the first browser. And can you imagine like how, how, how weird that is, you know, for a bunch of people who are used to traditional art distribution and traditional film distribution to see something like this mm. that could bring content from anywhere in the entire universe in our world and into your home. Um, you know, we had to really get our head around that. And so uh, from there I had to just really experiment to see what we could do to push this thing and figure out how to incorporate audio and animation and, you know, just any sort of special effects to make it cool. I'm trying to picture you and your 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 folks in that in that room looking at this monitor and this the first version of the web browsers. Wow, it's such an early early days that it's basically nothing has built and you have you can take it to any direction that you want. It was it was it was amazing. It was so amazing, like. The people that would, so the event started growing and we started doing other parties and we eventually scaled to large gallery spaces. I mean, we got to the point where Lou Reed and Lori Anderson came to one of my events to see what the hell we were doing. And by that time, we were all at, uh, you know, I, I was at online, uh, online magazine that had, uh, I don't know if it had a million dollars in funding, you know, some large amount of money where we could make. Uh, really cool literary stories, but hire artists and, 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 and contract, you know, DJs and just put these different stories on, on word.com. And that was my first year, my first job. And it was, it, and, and so we were being paid to just push it, push it, push it with the storytelling and the graphics and the interactivity. And it, and it was just, it was a, it was a really great time. And, 
you know, but then just like everything else, you know, it starts with porn and art and then it evolves into commerce. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, at the same time, I'm doing this Razorfish is starting out and, you know, slowly coming up, you know, coming to a methodology that it incorporated uh, information architecture before interface design. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and by 97, I, I was supposed to start this company, Razorfish, with the two other partners, but I ended up getting funded. Someone gave me a half a million bucks, half a million dollars to start my own startup that was called Electronic Hollywood. And so now I was funded to produce to produce art slash content for the web with no business model and um, and really no no constraints. So there was a, a, there was a long period in throughout the nineties up until everything crashed in 2000 that I got to experiment for 10 years. I have a ton of art from that period and I feel like it informed my career. And when people think of me as a UX person, I'm like, Mm. not really, you know, Mm. it's something that came out of what I did where all of a sudden there was like this formula for how to basically do interface design in a methodical way. But, you know, for me, it was about producing content and trying to shock people with really cool stories. So basically you first and foremost, an artist than a UX designer. Yes. But not the kind of artist that feels like it's precious, you know, Definitely more on the innovation side. and Yeah, yeah. Um, everything at that time had to always be the first something, the first floppy mm-hmm. disk, the first streaming cartoon, the first, mm-hmm. you know, it always, the medium, you know, it was like that had to be constantly evolving and part of the artwork. Um, so I, I now hoping as I move toward retirement to get back to that period of time and what wasn't, what doesn't play now will be simulated. And hopefully, you know, my fantasy is to, you know, finally have all my stuff exhibited in a museum, not just in galleries, but little bits here and there, how, how it has been, but to get back to my roots as an artist, even though I'm not the type of artist that I don't know how to draw, you know, Mm-hmm. A traditional artist, but I'm definitely someone that loves contemporary art and wants to be considered part of that world. When it's, there is tons of questions right now, but something I would like to just you know tap into is your your uh, how did you collaborate early on, especially in those ten years? Because like you know, it's not like it's not right now. 2022 where you have a slew of abundance of tools and technologies at your disposal to the point that you don't know which technology to choose at that point you had to make everything like invent everything or like creative create a technology the base technology so you can do something how big your team was like did you have main collaborators that you go to how did you get to get works done i would say at word when which was the online magazine that was highly creative and funded and mm-hmm. then at e hollywood which was my own studio um mm-hmm. which was funded 
Um, it was a situ- they, were, they were exactly the same situation where we had about five to six people in house. Like I remember sitting in a room with Yoshi and Maria, Marisa, and you know, one person was getting the stories, one person was doing the interface design and graphics, and you know, and I was more of a producer type. Um, and then at my own company, where I was again more of a producer type and creative director. Um, but then everybody else was remote. That was how we could afford it. Was like that. There were so many people in both situations who just wanted a chance to either say they're a web designer, so they needed like a reason to make a really cool looking page that pushed technology, um, or they were like DJs who never really got their content up on the web. And so I would be constantly hiring people I knew all over the country emailing them or they would email me say hey i want to work for you and then i would write up you know all the art direction like okay i need this sort of graphic and then it goes to here and i would tell the story like a screenplay and say here's five hundred dollars send it to me within two weeks and they would email me attachments and so it was and and telephone I, i guess i picked up the phone and talked to them once in a while but I, I feel like it isn't any different where I'm, you know, I think we even had FTP for distributing larger files. Mm-hmm. It was just really, um, everybody was remote. I, my whole thing then was I don't want to pay for people in their health plan. I can't afford it. I'd rather give a bunch of money to, uh, you know, to, to, in a more fragmented situation to, to numerous people and hope that maybe 80% of them would work out. And so the irony of that is that if you talk to people from that period of time, which you most were kind of rare now, uh, it's uh, the Gen X people that started out in that in that era. A lot of them will say their first job was working for me because mm-hmm. there was no jobs to begin with, and so people were really looking for uh, you know an opportunity to get paid. And so it wasn't really an intern model, but it was definitely like here's mm-hmm. you know I'll give anybody a story, I'll give anybody a cartoon. And, and, and see what I can get out of them for a few hundred bucks and then contract them for more and more work. And I still work that way now. Like nothing changed. It just moved from to Skype and then to Zoom. And, you know, it's, I, I've been working remote, you know, long before stupid COVID. That's fascinating. That's very fascinating. Like, you know, as if like we discovered remote working recently, you know, you know, it's it's not a new way of work. It has been it's, it has been the way that a lot of creatives, especially, did manage collaborate thanks to the um, advent of internet. So it's yeah. basically, I think, remote is is the DNA of 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 DNA the with the the default working mode of the internet. Yeah. We cannot. Yeah, and I would take it a step farther, farther to say it's it's not just remote; it's remote anywhere. You know, I'm mm. a big advocate of being a digital nomad. I'm living that life here in Berlin, working to New mm. York, and bopping back and forth to LA. And mm. um, you know, I think people are most productive when they're happy. <laughs> and. Some can be happy going into work because that's a lot of fun. It was good times going to my to my office, you know. Mm. 
But um, the best person that I work for generally, if I work full time, is for myself. You know, so I think if I'm working for other people, for clients, you know, the fact that we can be beamed into their offices and not be taking expensive and you know carbon (laughs) emissions, you know, flights around the world, it's I, I feel like there is some. There's clearly some upside that came as a result of uh, COVID Corona that has improved the work lives for people like us. Yeah, 100%. Like you cannot be contained, especially a person like you, that you are an innovator, you are an artist, you are a creative. You cannot be contained in one, in one big box that is called office. It just doesn't work. I mean that just if 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 people don't want to see it, if ex- executives, employees, whoever maybe don't want to see it, they just don't understand the uh, creative process. That's it. They just don't. I think there is something to be said though for you know I did spend my younger years in an office. I didn't really go. Mm. I mean, I yeah, I ran a lot of people remote, but that was because that was our business model required that um, that we have remote workers and it was cheaper to hire people outside of New York city. Um, but for true collaboration, I still think like the model of bringing people together for brainstorming and ideation. I mean, yeah, I run ideation workshops and it's just not the same as getting people in, in a room and, you know, I run my online classes versus the workshops, like the one I just did in Munich, and seeing people get together and talking and yeah. interacting and networking, you know, so I don't want to, you know, I think it's great that we can work remote, but I think we need to also be playing in person. Before, so we, we came all the way to 2000, so we have to go all the way to the 2020. But let me, because that's sort of like your, the phase that you were like innovating with new technologies. Uh, I would like to ask a question here. So in case you go into the retiring mode and you want to again play around with the technologies, do any of these new technologies, virtual reality, augmented reality, Web3, crypto, uh, interest you, excite you? No, absolutely mm. not. I, uh, they, Make I mean, crypto, boy, that just smells like a hot fart. You know, it's just so gross. <laughs> I think of some of the people I know who still think it's going to come back, and they're just so just insane and in denial. And you know, it's it's enough. You know, it's like, guys, the Ponzi scheme's over. One of your guys <laughs> is going to prison for decades. You know, it's. So that, you know, when we see technology just go, you know, it, oh, it's the Wild West and we're doing something, you know, and it's definitely not good for the environment. And it's just this, like, mad hype thing. I hate that. And I saw that happen with virtual reality. Like, back mm. during those parties in the East Village, virtual reality was just starting. And Jaron Lanier was a young man then, you know, and, you know, he's one of the early big guys that, that, that really pushed it, you know, messing around and trying to come up with, with the goggles and so forth. And the experimentation, you know, I would 
put those heavy things on my head, you know, all the way to, you know, fast forward five years ago, when my son had the one that, you know, he was like playing games for like two months. And then that thing went into the, into the garbage, you know, like it just feels like, and then we hear, you know, and I'm speaking specifically about virtual reality right now. Um, you know, when we hear, and I hear metaverse, I mean, I'm so happy to see Zuckerberg lose a ton of money in that. You know, I hope he just keeps believing in that fallacy of an idea um, that ultimately will just, if it was successful, would great, put us all in this stupid world of like, I'm an avatar. Um, I don't like it. Hello? Yep. Um, how do you, so, for innovators like that would like to experiment with technology, what would be your advice? Like, how do they? Like, how can they um, identify the false positives? Um, I I know it's a general question, and there might not be any answer to it. But just generally, if you want to reflect on this. Because the, some of these new technologies come with a lot of buzzes. And how, is there any way of telling that this is going to, this technology is not going to do anything? Because like you, you couldn't really know as well in, in like, you know, nineties. Like how did you know that certain things would work or certain things wouldn't work? I was pretty, I mean, when I first saw a version of the electronic magazine, I knew I was like, this is something. This is the future, mm. and and then when I started selling my disc, my disc magazines, and certain really important people, like from the original Apple team, came up to me at like conferences, saying, "I'll take them all," and this is the future. And then they would expound on what the future would look like, the next version, and they would say, "One guy to me who became an investor of mine said, you know, I'll take all sixty. I mean, here's thirty-six dollars.' I'm like, oh my god, I'm rich." And he's like, you know, and one day somebody is going to just download your disc magazines to the computer and they're just going to click a button and pay you. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, God, can you invent that now? I'm ready for that. But I, I just felt for sure that the, I didn't know what, I didn't understand like how the internet would be as a distribution medium for sure. But I definitely Mm -hmm. thought that static magazines and uh and and films <laughs> not, you know my idea for films definitely people weren't interested in changing the narrative of films and non-linear books they're just kind of they were dorky and i played a lot some of the things i did mess around with was basically you know a fad you could, i think mm. the question really is how do you spot something that's going to go beyond a fad and mm. It's it's hard to know something that's going to become like a TikTok. Like TikTok wasn't the mm. first TikTok. It was like, you know, Vine was there and, and, and YouTube was there. And, and and they just improved on so many things, you know, like this whole incre- incremental innovation is really the thing. It's not so much innovation. I'm going to invent something completely from scratch, but I'm going to take this idea and put mm-hmm. a spin on it, and 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 change the mental model, and and use something a different way, is one cool way to come up with innovative ideas. You know, um, 
And then the other for me is, is really to think from a storytelling standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, or you could say the jobs to be done framework, but just like, I have this thing that I want to get done. I have this mm-hmm. thing, you know, this thing that has an A, you know, that starts here and ends here. Now, here's, of course, the path of least resistance of how we're used to doing things. Imagine mm-hmm. if, and we start saying, you know, we start saying, if it could, you know, you start looking at the different points and saying, if in the future it could do this, like if, imagine how they imagined Uber and saying that's, can you imagine like Joe Blow would just go and pick up, you know, Gina Blow and she would just get into his car. You know, like how hitchhiking works, but all of a sudden it's like being paid through this network. You know, people would say, no way. But then all of a sudden they try it and they're like, yes way, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like mm-hmm. you, you imagining some experience that that's a deviation of what we do every single day. And then getting it in front of people and seeing how they react to it and then iterating on that is one really cool way to go about coming up with new concepts. Another fun way that my friend Reto Waitak, Reto Waitak, who's this amazing innovative innovator from Berlin here, one of my best friends, and he and he teaches uh, courses on this at um, I think it's called the Applied Science the University in Potsdam. And his idea, and I hope I'm not going to get him mad by giving by, by mentioning it but he he needs to get his super woke students who refuse to take any risks you know uh, they might offend themselves they might trigger themselves so he has to figure out ways to get them out of their shell to experiment because if you're so mm-hmm. caught up on oh i can't offend anybody then you're not going to be able to do anything you know mm-hmm. so no. he challenges them in the class to make something that is offensive. It's like, I want oh, wow. all the ideas and, it, and not necessarily in a sexual way at all. It's like, it could yeah. be something that like promotes smoking, it could, you know, but it's yeah. like just something to really get them to think about something, you know, in, in a different way. It could be some dating app with, with you know, teleportation or, you know, one that's more based around video that hasn't really worked. You know, we still haven't seen a successful version of, you know, why, why, are, why are people still swiping through Tinder? Why, why are they all videos? How much better yeah. would if they were all videos? Why, why does that not, why? You know, why can't I hear his voice? You know, and, and, and you know, not like I'm dating right now, but, you know, it's like, why? You know, I always looked at these technologies and thought, why are they so limited by either a particular media type or by them saying, oh, it's going to, I know if we make a video, someone's going to do something offensive. Yeah. So I feel like it's pushing people who are so concerned with being safe Mm. out of that mode so that they can hopefully think of things from a different perspective. I 100% agree with you. Like, if you want, if one, if you want to breed the next generation of innovators, an innovator cannot be a conformist. You, like, the, the, 
the, the whole essence of innovation is to challenge the status quo. So if we, if you are breeding, if you are training people who want to keep the status quo, there is no innovation. There will be maintenance, not innovation. Yeah, exactly. You have to be a type of person that doesn't take no for an answer and doesn't care what people think. You think Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, those guys cared about what other people, does Elon Musk seem like he cares about what people think of him? Clearly not. Ugh. Not like I consider him an innovator. I feel he's just a, a scumbag who steals ideas and, ugh, God, so many disgusting people in, in our field. Um, yeah. And, in, you know, it, it, one thing uh, in the eye, like, uh, the, in terms of ideation, there was a technique I bumped into and sort of reminded me what you said is that, okay, um, the idea was like creating the monster or creating the alter ego, something like this. You know, because you said, you said something about jobs to be done, that there is a, there's a start, there's, a, there's an ideal path, and there is something happens in between, which would be the storyline of it. So uh, basically, I, the way I think about innovation is like we are trying to understand the current way that people are doing things and telling it in a story. And innovation would be basically is all about telling a better story, right? Yeah. How can we improve someone's experience and how can we tell that story in a different way? So that's innovation. And like every innovation that has a hero and anti-hero, like an antagonist, if the ideal path is the happy path, we need to be able as innovator to conceive that monstrous path, that negative path, that you know, sort of a counter, counter um, the, the the happy path. And if someone that sit in the university classes and so like tied up and try not to bother anyone or try to please anyone, they really cannot think about all the um, negative scenarios or or. or all the possible scenarios that could counter the happy path. So, you know, it's yeah. very important to your point that people can and dare and have no problem questioning all the assumptions on the table. Definitely. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. Jamie, 2000, crash happened, big crash. The startups went bust. It was as if there was no future. Yeah. What happened then? So there's like no future. And, you know, I'm sitting there. I rented out my 5,000 square foot loft to an, uh, an eyeglass company that made frames. And we're sitting in the very back corner, me and Maria, my business partner, you know, collecting unemployment, trying to be like, are we going to scale up again? Is there anything left? And I had no idea. <laughs> um, I had no ideas. I was just freaked out. And um, and then just, you know, as, as, it, as if it couldn't get any worse, 9-11 happened in my Jeez. backyard. You know, like you 20, st 20 streets from my oh. house. Oh, boy. And... A lot of people think of 9-11 as the day of 9-11, but it wasn't like that for us in New York. It was 
the year of 9-11, you know, it was the month after where there was their kids, the victims' kids and families walking on the streets, putting up signs everywhere. Have you seen my mom? Hoping maybe they walked away and were in a daze walking the streets of the city or, you know, and when that happened, it went from, oh, my smallest violin problems of I'm not rich anymore, going to be a super millionaire as planned or even have a career that I'm, I don't even know if I can make money. Who cares about a, a dot-com CEO, you know, innovator when tech just showed it had no business model and crashed. Um, but then all of a sudden, when so many thousands of people in one of the, I think the only attack since Pearl Harbor in, on our on our land in New York City happens like that. Then you have to start thinking bigger than yourself. And I was so, mm. and it just it just completely. I stopped. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't. Mm. I couldn't imagine New York coming back at that time because it was just. There was no music, there was no comedy, there was no anything. You weren't meant to be having any fun because so many people had just lost their lives. Bush was all of a sudden leveraging it to fund a war. Mm. So just when it seemed it couldn't get any worse, I said, I think now's the time I go back to Los Angeles and start a family. Mm. And that's what I did. You know, I was in my late 30s or mid 30s and I... Fortunately, if that didn't happen, I would probably have just been a career woman and I would have regretted it for myself because I couldn't be more thrilled with my beautiful son who's about to be 18. And um, having that life in L.A., um, you know, it made me just, you know, and being a parent and being part of the family um, and owning a home and just like, getting fat and running, going jogging and being like a normal person. Um, that's what needed to happen for me at that point in my life. And, mm-hmm. and um, at that same time, I was just struggling to get, to figure out what am I, who's going to hire me? I'm like this person mm-hmm. who's in all the magazines, is this rock star, cyber rock star. And, you know, and now it's like, I'm this one of one of the many people who was given a bunch of money and has nothing to show for it but a bunch of cartoons and online games, you know. And um, I was confused about my future because I, as I mentioned before, I'm not an artist like who can draw. I don't. I'm not really. Yes, I'm good at graphic design, but not like a real visual designer who's like killing it in After Effects or someone who just like lives yeah. and breathes in InDesign or lives and breathes. And so I'm like, I'm not going to be as good as any visual artist and I'm not going to be a real developer. I'm just like this HTML JavaScripting hack. So what's in between? And, and thankfully, I was friends with people who were information architects at Razorfish, the, the LA version of the company, and, and Yahoo was there. And they just sat me down and said, you can do this stuff. You've been doing it in your head. But before you do information design, inter- interface design, you need to understand the flow. And you've been documenting things on napkins and in emails to, your, to, your, to the contractors, but you, 
you can actually make, you know, process flows and site maps. And I was like, really, for a living? <laughs> and they're like, and then we don't do interface design with Photoshop anymore. We, we use this tool called Visio and, and we do wireframes. And so I went to my portfolio from web design stuff and I went and created wireframes. I backwards engineered it to wireframes and sitemaps of the shit that I had made in my head <laughs> and then went on interviews saying, oh, yeah, here's all the deliverables I created before we built it, you know, and immediately got hired um, and started working for an amazing company called Schematic. Like I was just the luckiest dog that got placed in an inner at a very in a, the most innovative interactive you know UX shop out of Los Angeles by far where Dale Herrickstaff was running our group the dude that did Minority Report stuff you know the dude that like Steve Jobs sent his people down to look at our stuff and how we did Z space navigation. To do to figure out what to do with pinch on the iPhone when they were developing it, like so I was around it was like I was given this amazing chance in my early forties then to all of a sudden use some of the first tools for do and and for doing user experience design and and it was it was it was there that all of a sudden I got introduced to the discovery phase, and then it was like the a concept for the book was sort of born because I was like, I need to. I also had been a professor. I've been a, a college professor since I was 20. Since I graduated from NYU, they hired me back immediately two years later to start teaching there. And so I was always trying to teach courses that was something I was interested in. So I would sign myself up to teach UX design. So it would force me to understand how do you teach personas? How do you teach user flows, how do you teach site mapping? And then when I got more to that, I was like, what's this thing, discovery phase? What's this thing, UX strategy? And um, and then I started teaching UX strategy at UCLA and then at, and started recording the lectures and then transcribing them and that became the foundation for the book. Um, so yeah, it was, it was through growing up mm. and going through, it was, I wouldn't say it was midlife, I mean, I guess, if, if I die when I'm 80, then my 40s were midlife. But um, I went from being an innovator and technologist mm -hmm. of someone who was in the middle trying to take other companies, large companies, you know, whether it be ABC Studios or Oprah or GE Healthcare, and take sit and learn how to, you know, get the business requirements and create strategy briefs and then bring those back to the product design team and develop whether it be prototypes or, you know, full, full blown, you know, dynamic websites. Like I, I became so stoked to be this person that could like manage large scale sites and get mm -hmm. paid so much money, you know, at a certain point after doing that in the agency world for five years, I started mm -hmm. my own company consulting, just the first one of the first UX strategy companies, whatever that's worth. But um, that's kind of my transformation from, you know, the, the tech bubble popping to the UX bubble, like just blowing up and becoming a world into itself. So, um, I mean, I think this is the right 
you are the right person to ask these questions because you have you have work in your past in your in, in your experience you have worked with on really massive large scale projects so often most likely you had to interact with ceos and like executives and you had to always you know we are consultant we have to sell our craft you have to sell why you need to hire us so how would you like sort of like answer this question if if someone asks you hey why do we need to invest in UX strategy to avoid wasting a lot of money mm. to validate that your vision of the solution is something that customers want and that's going to make the mm. business money uh, mm-hmm. to avoid writing a bunch of spaghetti code um, and crossing your fingers and hoping that it's going to work. And that's really the thing is to build up enough evidence to be able to say with a higher level of confidence that what you envision and your roadmap for executing it is something that's going to work. Especially for me coming from a world of just building things and we'll just see if we could come up with a business model at the very end. <laughs> um, you know, most of the time it didn't work a couple of times it did work, but um, for me flipping that on its head now and starting with what's our business model and then attack and then approaching innovation from the standpoint on, even if it's innovative, who cares? You know, it's not even about innovation anymore. It's, because I think a simple solution and a minimalist pr- approach is a lot more exciting than something that's super com- complicated, you know. And I think I get high these days, not off of innovation. It's going to sound dorky, but it's the truth. But I think I get high off of inspiring people to confidently collaborate with each other and come up with their own ideas. And that's yeah. why I like the workshop so much. I like to let people experiment and just to oversee it as a cheerleader and a mentor. Um, I think at this point in my career, I don't need to be, I shouldn't be, and I probably can't be that person to, to come up with innovative ideas mm-hmm. anymore because I'm so jaded, you know, and it's, mm-hmm. I think it's up for people your age to do that. You have to be all ages, but I think, you know, we all go through periods of our life and we can at some point recognize, like, where, where do we fit in now? Um, just, I, I want to get your, because probably this is the question of many of our listeners. Do you see product strategy as part of UX strategy or the other way around? I just see them as the same thing. I, I'm not one mm. to play the semantics game. I mean, if yeah. I had to do a talk, which I have, where what's the difference between product strategy and design strategy mm. and UX strategy? I'm always going to be mm. that says a word. <laughs> it's, they're the same craft. Go look yeah. at the job ads on LinkedIn for a design strategist and then look at the ones for UX strategists and look for the ones for the product strategists. If there's any deviation, mm. it's usually product strategist ones because they want to have more of a marketing background. But the design strategists and the UX strategist ones are identical. They want someone that's really mm. understanding how to use qualitative research practices so that they can collect evidence, read out desks, and they want someone who can sit in workshops and play with the business model campus or 
you know, ideate and blah, 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 and um, design think, woo! And, you know, just use all the big words and get stakeholders aligned. Um, and then, uh, you know, and then my favorite thing, which I'm really enjoying at my current, with my current client is really pushing competitive research and analysis and how that's conducted. I think that's a big, uh, some misunderstood craft uh, or, you know, skill set. And it's very complicated and, and intimidating. And I guess that's why I'm attracted to it. Um, so I don't know. Did I answer your question? What was your question? You, you did answer my question. Uh, and I, yeah, 100%. I think it's a, it's a game of semantic. Like, it's really like UX strategy and product strategy. Like, it really depends. Like, if, if you know, it's, it's it really like it. Uh, I think there there might be differences, but like you've got to look into each each company. Might they need to look into their own cases? Maybe it could be different. Maybe they have multiple products, right? Yeah. So UX strategy might be some sort of over um, overarching um, strategy that sort of like define UX for each product. But like, really, I think it's just a game of semantic at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've heard definitions like UX, uh, UX strategy is, tender, is the process that our UX organization, you know, is, is using, or it's our, it's the maturity level of our UX organization and how we're going to scale it to be a bigger part of the DNA of the company. You know, it's like, mm. Okay, so it's our strategy for the UX, you know. So then, so now it's the, the big, it's a big U and a small S, and you know. And then if it's design strategy, you know, it's how is that any different? It's just so, it's so boring to to to, mm -hmm. to have that conversation when people are going to use the words in so many different ways and so many different contexts, and no matter what HR people are going to be confused. Um, you know, I change my title every six months. I don't care. I think it's so stupid. Mm. And um, the uh, thing that I, I feel like is that if you start like, you know, and I'm not going to say who does this, but there are people that do this where you say, okay, product strategy is this and design strategy is this and UX mm. strategy is this. Then you're saying, "Oh, I'm God. I'm God of these words, and this is how yeah. everybody should use them." But it, if you think about yeah. it, like you know, Alan Cooper and uh, some of those other dudes back in those days, they were having that same stupid semantic debate because Alan Cooper invented interaction design, and then that other guy, <laughs> Apple, forgot his name, blah 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 blah, blah. <laughs> old guy now. Uh, he he. Don Norman, right? He's, he coined the yes. term UX design, I yes. guess. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. I, won't, I won't go off on him. But like, you know, it's like, who cares? You know, like, who cares mm. if it's called UX design or interaction design? At the very end, maybe one of them is going to win. You know, mm. and, and it's just, I, I'm not going to go to Wikipedia and say, and put up the term UX strategy and define it. You know, it's just, it's too boring. And I already did enough with the book that it's part of our vocabulary and, um, mm. you know, explaining what it means to me and explaining that, you know, it, 
whatever people want to call it, it doesn't make a difference to me. All I, all I care about is that they're being strategic in the process. Mm-hmm. So, um, Jamie, I hear in your words certain keywords that I am in love to hearing, like experimentation, discovery, evidence. And I would love to put you in a sort of a role play scenario, not role play, but in, in an imaginary scenario. I don't know if you heard about CNN Plus thingy that got shut down after in, they invested about $150 million in it. It was a live st- streaming platform for CNN. Mm-hmm. So if, um, let, let's say CNN wants to start CNN Plus, and instead of like using the team that ended up you know, instead of using the, the team that used work on the project, they want to reach out to you and ask first for sort of like a guidance in terms of how can we start, like how can we go validating this this opportunity? Like, you know, we think there's a, there's a potential in online streaming, having an online streaming pla- platform for CNN, uh, but we don't know where to start. What should we do, uh, Jamie? Uh, you know, MVP that baby. Make a prototype mm. or a simulation or an alpha, mm. whatever you want to call it, version of mm. something that gives people an understanding, a proof of concept of of it, and get mm. it in front of as many people as possible to get feedback and iterate on it. You know, the lean startup approach. Um, mm. And while at this, while while doing that, you know, I, I was basically the using the same process in my book. It's like, let's go talk to customers first and even see who we think mm. the target customer and, and see if there's a something missing from them in their news experience. Find out what that is, what they wish if they could mm. wave a magic wand, if it can improve their experience, what it would be, and really understand their perspective and, and, and see if there's a problem that actually needs to be solved. To begin with, I would mm. start with that. Why the hell are they doing this? Mm. Then I would use the second thing that I teach in the book, which is competitive research analysis. And I would say, let's look at the entire, mm. you know, history and present day state of news distribution on the web and interactive television and see what's worked and what hasn't worked. And then look at, mm. well, if there's new technologies coming out that we can push things to the next level, how would it make what didn't work work better and see if there's opportunities. Look at nascent players who are doing some cool stuff over here and over there. Start taking different, some of these cool little ideas, cherry picking from them and putting them into a prototype to put into front of customers. And I would create not one, but two or three prototypes that show totally different concepts with a different narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, that uses the next thing in my book, which is storyboarding and coming up with this mm-hmm. that, you know, traipses someone through the value innovation, uh, mm-hmm. in, any innovative features. So they get the context of why I would do something. You're not asking them, so would you be interested in, um, you know, having all the data from a feed go into blah, blah, blah. Like, no one's going to be like, no, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. But really give them an understanding of that experience so they get it and then can say, yeah, eh, or yeah, this, the, you know, their head explodes. They love it, you know, and move into prototyping, taking them to the, the prototypes to the next level and then start yeah. delivering a product. 
you know, testing the business model, trying to find out if customers are going to be okay to advertising or okay to, you know, a pay-as-you-go model, all these different ways to approach it. You know, I think a lot, I know CNN, the thing that is that, to me, I hate about CNN is that I can't watch it whenever I want to unless I pay too much money to get access to it. You know, like, why are they experimenting more with different models to let people watch it? I mean, I know that why they're not the same with the sports networks, so the same with the porn mm-hmm. networks, is they don't want to, they want you to pay the whole thing. But why, if they want, if they, if they need more money, why don't they think about some kind of compromise and taking all these different data points and presenting them to stakeholders and saying, Hey, here's yeah. what we learned from all these different experiments and from our research and getting them to the point of the presentation where they're like, we got an idea. How about if we do this? And they say back to me the idea that was in my head the whole time. But it came out of their mouth, and they think it's theirs, and they own it, and that is absolute success. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't my head the whole time, not like it, I agree. But maybe I did figure it out halfway along the way, and mm-hmm. I needed to figure out a way to get them there and be okay with it, and that they got mm-hmm. there. And that's the really the most important ingredient of successful strategy is mm-hmm. buy-in. <laughs> Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Totally. UX strategy. The book is in English. Is the because some of our folks are like we are based in Germany, so there is a lot of our folks listening to this are Germans. Is there a German version? <gasps> That's so funny you ask. So you know the English version looks like this, right? <clears throat> Yeah. In English, but it's been now translated into nine languages, including. Congratulations. Deutsch! Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. Is, is that a fox in there? Oh, that's the black backed jackal, Barrett. What's up with you? You don't know your zoology? <laughs> the black backed jackal, you know, he can attack things five times its size. He comes from Africa, <laughs> you know? I, my ignorance. Yeah, so then your next question is, did O'Reilly let you pick that animal? Does O'Reilly let you pick the cover of your book? You want to ask me that? Um, yeah. Did O'Reilly pick up that animal for you, or you did pick it up? No. Try again. You have to say, so, Jamie, did you get to pick the animal on, on your book? Jamie, did you get to pick the animal for your book? No, no, <laughs> Riley doesn't do that because authors like myself were, were just whiners, you know, and if we all picked the animal, we would all like be picking all the cool animals. So they give you the animal after you've been working on your book for sometimes years, they say, hey, and so they came to me and they showed me some like, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a bird this was seven years ago in the first edition. It was like, I have it somewhere. It was, it was maybe it was a lizard. It was some weak ass animal. 
And I remember looking at it on my cover, and I was sitting in the parking lot of the library, and I was crying. I was like, my life is ruined. It's ruined because I didn't get a good animal. I got this weak-ass animal on my book. This isn't a strategy animal. And so I rejected it. And then they said, oh, we got to find her a badass animal. And so they started, like, going through all their massive collection of animals, and they finally, you know, I wanted, like, I don't know, the honey badger. And they're like, sorry, that's going to go to, like, Bitcoin or something more popular at the time. Yeah. And so I got I got uh, the blackback jackal, but they were like when they they they, they really had to get my buy-in because they knew I was a crybaby at that point. And so they were like, it can attack animals five times its size. It whines. It goes to the throat. <laughs> Look it up on Wikipedia, Jamie. It's a killer animal. It's a badass animal, Jamie. It's a good animal. And I was like, ah, got it. Let's release the book. Yeah. Jamie, did, I know that you got a workshop coming out in Munich, right? Is that correct? I just did a workshop in Munich. I've got one in Berlin. When is it? It is and February. Who 24th. and when? It is February twenty fourth. Okay. You just have to go to Eventbrite and type in UX strategy, and it will come up. It's the. Yeah. Um, uh, it's going to be here, a few blocks from my house in Schoenberg at District One. It's going to be really intimate. I think mm-hmm. like 15 people because that's the biggest room they got. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to, what did they say to me when I'm like, I used to do things and I'm used to doing at least 25 people. And they said, work smarter, not harder. Uh, I was like, yeah, okay. whatever you say, whatever you say, boss, I'll take the room. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's so, it. yes, um, you can message me on LinkedIn if you want a discount code and, uh, and I'll help you out. Come on down. I'll put the link in the description, folks, as well, for those who are hearing this on podcast and those here on the LinkedIn. So um, I'm actually, if I, yeah, it's it's closer to when my, uh, yeah, it's if I can, I will definitely add into that one. I think that's really cool. Yeah, please um, dip into that. I, I have to say, dip into yeah, that. and you get a free book, not free. It's part of it. The thing, uh, so you got to yeah, you know, autograph it. That'll make it even more valuable. I'm, it is close because I'm expecting my first baby, so it's, <gasps> been, it's very close. To, oh. It's very close to that time, yeah. so I really cannot promise like February, April, like March, April. That's a very tricky zone. Yeah, but for I you. would love to attend that. Thank you. That's so Thank wonderful. Uh, I I want to be mindful about the time, and I, I think. Yeah, I, I just wanted to again um, uh, show my appreciation for you taking time. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. I follow you on LinkedIn, and uh, uh, thanks for all the work that you've done. Paid the work, paid paved the path for people like me to come and practice UX. I think I think this is you know uh, we have to we have to really uh, it's it's my duty as as part of the ux community to give you the flowers when when you're around and i really cannot thank you enough for all the hustle that you've done in the 90s and all the way till now i appreciate you and thanks a lot for doing your work thanks for having me it's been fun pleasure thank you team thank you folks uh, the link will be in the description um if you're not following jamie levy on linkedin or any other 
channel, you are missing out. Uh, this podcast is a proof of it. Thanks a lot. And until the next one.